after reading verse 2 and to verse 10. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. Verse 10, When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Is anybody here today glad Jesus came? Aren't you glad he came? Amen. Everybody say, thank God for the word. God bless you. Thank you for standing in reverence to the word. You may be seated. Somebody said, as a matter of fact, it was Plato said, wise men speak because they have something to say. Fools, because they have to say something. I concur. Somebody said, rules are for the obedience of fools and the guidance of wise men. I love this quote, wise men don't need advice and fools won't take it. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said that. <clears throat> Ignorant men raise questions that wise men answered years ago. I'm thankful for the wise men that were a part of the Christmas story. Uh, they are Gentile men. Uh, they were from afar, and by all legal right based on the law of Moses, they really weren't invited. They didn't have any real part or place in the Christmas story. I'm glad God included them. They were Gentiles, and I believe they represented you and I, and I'm glad they were there. But one of our enduring Christmas traditions is that there were three of them some have even speculated as to what their names were. But they travel from the far east on camels, tradition says, to visit the infant Jesus as he lay in the manger. The truth is that the Bible contains virtually none of these details. Matthew doesn't say how many wise men came from the east. He doesn't mention their names and doesn't provide any details about how they made their journey. It's generally accepted that they rode on camels and that there were three of them because there were three gifts. But the Bible doesn't say. They could have walked in, uh, the whole distance for all we know. And despite the familiar lyrics of the Christmas carols, We Three Kings of Orient Are, there's no biblical source that depicts these three wise men as kings. They are more, most likely to be learned men and most believe they were even astrologers because they followed the star. And most importantly, they didn't find baby Jesus in a manger. The Bible said that these wise men came into the house, not the stable, and they saw a young child, not an infant. So this indicates that the wise men didn't arrive until quite some time after Jesus' birth probably about two years later since Herod killed every male child in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. 
and that's quite an arduous journey just to attend a worship service. I want to speak to you for a few minutes today about worshiping with wise men. Worshiping with wise men. The most amazing thing to me about these foreign astrologers is that they grasp and got a hold of what God's own people, the Jewish people in Israel, missed completely. First and foremost, these men understood that Jesus was the King of Kings. They understood that because they went to King Herod asking for he that was born King of the Jews. Let me share with you some very interesting uh, facts about the life of Jesus. There were some 332 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that were fulfilled throughout the life of Christ. There was a mathematician named Peter Stoner said that if you took just eight, just eight of these 332 prophecies, the odds of a person coincidentally fulfilling all eight would be one in ten to the 17th power. The odds aren't very likely that these things were a coincidence. And since we can't easily picture one in ten to the 17th power, what that means, uh, Stoner gave this illustration. Suppose you took the state of Texas and spread silver dollars two feet deep across the entire state, then marked just one of them and buried it somewhere in the state. Then if you chose one person, blindfolded him, and told him to pick just one silver dollar, his chances of getting the marked one on his first try would be one in ten to the seventeenth power. That's only eight of the prophecies of Christ coming to pass. Stoner students at Westmount College made the same calculation with 48 prophecies. Not all 332, but only 48 of them, and came to the extremely conservative estimate that 48 of these prophecies coming to pass in the life of Christ would be 1 out of 10 to the 157th power. I understand this is 1 in 10, with 10 having 150 zero, 157 zeros behind it. But Jesus didn't just fulfill eight of the prophecies or 48 of the prophecies. He fulfilled all 332. The fact that Jesus fulfilled so many prophecies with 100% accuracy proves two things. Number one, that there is a divine author behind the Bible. There is absolutely a divine author behind the Bible. Number two is that Jesus Christ is exactly who He said He was. He is the Almighty God. And everybody say Amen. But one of the most incredibly detailed prophecies was given by the prophet Micah at least 500 years before Jesus was born when He foretold the exact birthplace of the Messiah. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, he prophesied that thou Bethlehem Ephrata, thou, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, 
yet out of these shall he come forth unto me. That is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. How could an imposter have controlled these minute details concerning the place of birth? There were actually two Bethlehems existing in existence at this time. One was in the territory of Zebulun, according to Joshua chapter 19, verse 15, and the other was in Judea, Bethlehem, Ephrata. This town of Bethlehem, Ephrata was so small and insignificant that it is twice omitted from a catalog of towns in, in Judah. In Joshua 15 and in Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 25, it's omitted. According to John 7 and verse 42, the Bible said that it is a tiny village. Of all the locations in the entire world, the true Messiah could be born in only one. Notice also that the Messiah was to come from old and from everlasting. He would have the same attributes as God Himself. And that's impossible unless it was really the Almighty God in flesh in that manger in Bethlehem, Ephrata. The most frustrating part of all of this is that the religious scholars in Jerusalem knew that the Scriptures talked about the Messiah. They were well versed in what the Scriptures had to say about the Messiah. But when He came, when uh, understanding Him and understanding who He was and where He would come from and where He would be born, they had studied these things hundreds of years. The Bible said in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 4, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among, uh, art not the, least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor, and he shall rule my people Israel. Get this, pagan wise men made a two-year journey from the Far East to worship the Lord Jesus with only a star to guide them. But the chief priests and scribes who knew all about the prophecies didn't even travel five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to check out the miraculous signs being fulfilled right under their nose. Let me preach to Grace Church here for a minute. We can claim all the knowledge about Jesus that we want to claim. We can claim to be true apostolics, meaning that we believe in one God and His name is Jesus. But listen to Pastor this morning. If our hearts doesn't pertain Produce the worship and the commitment and the sacrifice that His coming deserves, then it's all a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal and goes no further than knowledge. I've come today to worship with wise men. I've come today to worship with men and women who know who Jesus is. And we didn't come here today empty-handed. We didn't come here today with nothing to bring. But I've come to say to Him, You can have my life. You can have my talent. You can have my future. You can have everything about me. I've come today to worship, to worship with wise men and women who truly know who he is. Clap your hands to Jesus. Thank the Lord. Praise God. Thank the Lord. I fear sometimes 
that there are many signs of Jesus' second coming, the rapture of the church, that have been fulfilled in our time. And just as the men of old, during the time of Jesus' birth, had grown accustomed and familiar to His birth, we've read this for many, many years. This has been passed down for many, many years. Hundreds of years, Jesus is going to be born. Jesus is going to be born. It paralyzes my spirit to think that on the night He was, with as many prophecies as they had, with as many signs as they had, with all the things that was coming to pass right under their nose, that not one religious person showed up at that manger that night to rejoice about Jesus being born. I have a feeling there's going to be people in our world today, and I don't say this to be condemnatory, but it's, 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 it's advantageous for us to wake up and understand so that we don't fall into the same trap that they did. But I believe the rapture of the church is imminent. I believe Jesus could blow the, have the trumpet blown any time He wants to, and the way our world is right now. And we've heard it for years, but I want to tell you today, it's still real in my heart, man. I don't walk outside ever without glancing up to a blue sky and wondering, is this going to be the day that we hear a trumpet sound and we're going to be caught up out of here in a moment in the twinkling of an eye? We know Him today, folks. And because we know Him, that makes us wise people. And because we're wise, our wisdom should produce worship and praise and excitement and jubilance. I'm here to proclaim to you today, I'm glad He came. I'm glad he came, and I love to worship him. I love to worship him. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And I'm glad I know him today. Hallelujah. I feel like I'm worshiping with wise men today. Praise God. The second thing they knew, not only that he was the king of kings, but they understood how to worship. I want everyone to understand with me, and I know we've all heard the story many times, but I don't read in Scripture where these wise men were educated in Scripture. I don't read where they were scholars in the law of Moses. I don't read where they knew all the prophecies. All I know and all we know was what the Bible said. They saw a star, and when they saw it, they rejoiced. Praise God. They didn't have all the training and teaching. They didn't have years of Sunday school. They didn't have years of church attendance and camp meetings and youth camps. They came from afar. The, the Jewish religion, if you will, was foreign to them. They didn't understand tradition. They didn't understand culture. They didn't understand what was appropriate. But what they did understand, if the king of kings has been born, we're not sure who he is. We don't really know what he's all about. But this one thing we do know is when we come to him, we better have something in our hands. And when we see him, we better worship. I don't know what told them that. I don't know where they got that idea. But I'm going to tell you something. When you really walk 
walk into the presence of God, it ought, it ought to do something to you, man. You're in the presence of a king. You're not feeling some warm sensation and goosebumps up and down your back, but you're walking into the presence of God Almighty. And when you do, it ought to bring you a response out of you. It ought to bring something out of you. It ought to bring something valuable out of you. It ought to bring something precious out of you. Because if we're wise men today, we should know him and we should know how to worship him. I feel the Holy Ghost here right now. Clap your hands one more time and let's give up some praise to Jesus. You know, celebrities must always carry the baggage of doubt. They always carry the baggage of doubt, and this is what I mean. When you're a person of wealth or royalty, you can have many perks and privileges, but it also has some penalties. And perhaps the most severe penalty is that you're never quite sure whether someone is befriending you because of your person or because of your position. The troubling question must be constantly asked of every single one of their relationships by every wealthy, famous, or powerful person. Do my friends love me because of who I am or because of what I possess? That's why King Solomon was so smitten by the Shulamite girl. Some say that same as Shunamite. The Bible says Shulamite. But actually, King Solomon had disguised himself as a humble shepherd to travel throughout his vast kingdom of Israel. And when she saw him, the Shulamite girl saw him, she fell in love with him without really knowing who he was. She loved the shepherd. She loved the shepherd. Not just the king. She loved the person, not just his position. You can read their love story in the Song of Solomon. The wise men understood that they were not coming to Bethlehem to get something. They were coming to give something. They understood the principle of Scripture. You never come before a king empty-handed. You always bring a gift. Solomon, history most powerful, most wealthy, most intelligent ruler, must have said to him many times, Who will love me more than the things I can give them? Where are the people who are more interested in touching my heart than in sampling my splendor? Who is interested in my needs. That's why Solomon fell in love with a Shulamite girl. I wonder today what Jesus wonders. Let me say in passing this morning that I would have a greater sense of understanding the story of the wise men if they had showed up when Jesus was an adult man and then went and fell on their face and worshipped him. But to fall on your face 
at the feet of not the parents, not Mary and Joseph, but to fall at the feet of a two-year-old who can do absolutely nothing for you. Does everybody understand that? Chris, how old is Cohen? Ask Hannah. Huh? 20 months? So he's close to two years old. Who would feel comfortable walking up to Cohen Lewis with a package of gold? His mom and dad wouldn't have a problem with it. But to walk up with a package of gold and frankincense and myrrh, I'm not going to get into what all those things mean, but it was actually pointing Jesus towards his crucifixion. But to bring packages like that to Cohen Lewis and then bow down at his feet and get on your face and worship this little baby who has not long learned to walk, who cannot potty by himself, who cannot yet really feed himself, who can't dress himself, y'all understand, has not yet gotten a full command of the English language. But to walk up to a child that's about two, two and a half years old and fall down and worship. You listen to me, Grace Church. I can understand them walking up to an adult man or an adult person and saying, hey, that's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's worship him because surely he can give me something back out of his kingdom and what have you. Not in this case. If those wise men can go and worship a baby without clear understanding who he is, then how much more should Pentecostals walk into a church service and say, I know him in spirit and in truth. And I'm going to worship him with everything on the inside of me. I want to worship with some wise men today. <laughs> Hallelujah to God. Thank the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm almost finished. But you ever wonder what Jesus wonders? Do we come before him to get or to give? Have we brought a gift to the king of kings today? Or did we come into his presence empty-handed? Let me take you back to the Old Testament, and I'm wrapping this up. The tabernacle gave a literal diagram of three levels of worship that really still apply to us today in, in, in type and symbology and so on. All of the Israelites could enter the outer courts. Only the priests could enter into the courts of the tabernacle itself. And only the high priest could enter into the holy place. The psalmist David talked about two of them. One that everyone could go to. The second that only the priest could go to. When he said in Psalm 100 verse 4, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Let me submit to you this morning that thanksgiving is the lowest form of worship because it is dependent on the question, what have you done for me lately? Thousands of people are in church today because of what God has done for them. But praise takes things up another, another notch, another level, if you will. 
Praise is a higher level of worship that takes you further into the presence of God. It's not just thanking God for what He's done, but it's praising God for who He is. God is worthy of praise, whether you're having a good day or a bad day. Praise is completely independent of your life circumstances. But then there's a third level. It's the highest level of all. And it's called worship. Because in worship, we worship with our lives. Our physical bodies are used as tools of worship. We literally become the praise offered to God because of our lives that we live before Him. Listen to Pastor. Let this be very shocking. The only thing necessary to praise God is your breath. All you need to praise God is your breath. But to worship Him, you have to lay down your very life before Him. So, here at Grace, that's why we amplify worship so much. We don't just worship God in church, but we worship God on Monday when we go to work. Because we live our lives as unto Him, pleasing to Him. Notice, the psalmist said, let everything that hath breath. Let everything that hath breath. Praise the Lord. But Paul said... In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. John said in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. The Greek word for worship means to kiss, like a dog licking his master's hand, to fawn or to crouch to to prostrate oneself in homage and worship. This kind of worship, listen, this kind of worship that God wants out of us as wise men. This kind of worship doesn't preserve our dignity because it honors His divinity. Uninhibited worship seems outlandish to the human mind, but it's normal around the throne in heaven. It seems we have a lot of spiritual adolescents around the church today who've grown out of their childlike love for their Heavenly Father and they seem to be embarrassed by Jesus. Would you stand with me today? We'll get to Chuck E. Cheese as soon as we can. I'm hurrying. I love our kids. They're so honest. They're so brutally honest. The pastor's preaching an incredible message on worship good Christmas sermon and they want to go to Chunky Cheese I think it's that little Duran boy that's over there are y'all going to Chunky Cheese when it's over okay in Mark chapter 10 verse 15 Jesus said verily I say unto you whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child he shall not enter therein you remember the woman with the issue of blood in Mark 5? There was a multitude that came to hear Jesus. 
And there was a crowd that thronged him, but she literally laid her life at his feet. The same with the woman with the alabaster box. She left it all there. When she got done breaking that box, there was nothing to take home with her. It was the same for the blind man who cried out to Jesus. It was the same in the New Testament church. But let me ask you today, how is it with you? Do you still love Him? Did you bring anything today to give Him? Did you give Him your life back? Did you give Him your heart back? I heard a Christmas carol, Christmas song, walking through a shopping place the other day. This lady said, and I don't totally understand the song, and I try to listen to the words. I need to Google it and, and read them so I can understand. But It has to do with romance, but it fits so well here. She said, last year I gave somebody my heart, a boyfriend, my heart, but you gave it away. So this year I'm going to give it to someone special, someone that, y'all know what I'm talking about? Maybe I'm misinterpreting the whole song. I don't know if that's what I got out of it. I want to tell you something. You'll never give your heart to Jesus that He won't value your service, that He won't appreciate your sacrifice, and that He won't love you forever. And there's people sitting in this building right now that you've given your heart to all kinds of things. You've given your heart to worldliness and sin. You've given your heart to bitterness and an unforgiving spirit. You've given your heart to pride. You've given your heart to all kinds of things. And you've just dug your heels in the dirt and said, You know what? When it comes to worshiping Jesus and living for Him, I'm going to live my life the way I want to. But I want to tell you, if you're a wise man today, you'll put all that aside and worship Him. So, I want them to sing and play here this morning, create an awesome atmosphere. We're not coming to the manger this morning. We're coming to His house. We are in His house. This is where He lives. But He's not a child. He's not a baby. He can supply all of your needs according to His abundant riches and glory. He can. But today, I want us to come, everybody, if you would, just for a few moments. Hey, we're out way early today. Everybody just come stand around the front for a few moments. And I want you to give Him some worship. I'd like for you to give Him commitment. Give Him your life. God, this year at Christmas, I'm going to give my heart to you. The things, God, that I've held back on, the things, God, that I didn't want to do, the things that I didn't want to submit to, the things that I didn't want to surrender. God, I'm going to give all that to you today. For Christmas, I'm coming to give you who I am. I'm coming today to give you my identity. I'm coming to give you my future. I'm bringing you my broken heart. I'm bringing you my frustration. I'm bringing you the cares of my life. I'm bringing you, God, everything I am. And though it's coming to you, God, in broken pieces, I'm still going to give it to you. It's all I have. It's all I have. Come on, folks. Somebody worship Him. This is Christmas time, man. This is what Christmas is about. All across the front of the building, would you worship Him? Worship Him. I've come today to worship with wise men. Let's worship Him. Come on, folks. I feel the Holy Ghost right now. I feel the Holy Ghost. I feel the Holy Ghost. God wants to be worshipped. God wants to be worshipped. God wants to be worshipped. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord.